0: of what you look at probably when you read it, hopefully, is a most gracious display that God showed to Israel in the book of Exodus, chapter 24. I was trying to help these 7th graders understand this idea of what ratification means. Now, almost always in the ancient world, when a covenant was made, it would be sealed or solidified or made official by a meal afterward. A meal would seal the deal. And I didn't mean to do that just now. It's not written down, so that's where I'm at. I couldn't do it again. I don't think my seventh grade class believed me because as I was trying to help them understand the profoundness of the meal event, when not only Moses, as we only think Moses is the only one that went up the mountain on this occasion in Exodus 24, but her, who is presumably one of the chief elders, Aaron, the high priest of that nation, his sons and successors, and the 69 other elders, who are part of these 12 tribes that exploded in population in Egypt, they all went with Moses on the mountain. I don't think my students believe me when I told them that in sealing the deal of this covenant, during this meal, when they shared in it together, they were literally having this mountaintop experience. Whereas they ate and drank, they were in the immediate presence of God. If you read the Exodus event, you're going to find a physical description in 24 of God in such a way that Moses, the elders, Nadab, and Abihu, Aaron's sons, they seemed to be looking at God, but only a part of God in such a way as that as they were eating and drinking, it's almost like this, like they were looking down and they didn't, they didn't dare lift up their eyes to look at God's face. Most probably, we think out of fear, which oftentimes is the most natural response to the presence of God. Let me read it for you. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like pavement made of sapphire, clears the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. Moses seems to indicate that they would not dare lift their eyes because they only described the platform on which God was standing, which clearly implies that God has a form that they were able to identify with. I don't think my students believe me about the fear aspect in this passage that these leaders felt. This overwhelming fear, they didn't dare lift their eyes. Trying to somehow, as you do with young people and older people too, but young people you try to get them to get this this understanding when you reach back into the ancient text and bring it into modern day you try to get them to feel the things that could have possibly gone on there and as i was trying to do that i don't think my students believed me when i was telling them about my encounter when i was like 7 years old i had an encounter with santa claus and i don't think they believed me it goes like this it was christmas eve I know I'm a little bit different now than I used to be uh, in terms of my personality, but if you can imagine this, I know it might be hard, but I was a big fan of collecting stuffed animals. <laughs> I know that's pretty soft, but that's okay. And I had a whole family of them. Like, there were probably about, why do I do this during my sermons? There were probably about 65 or so animals, and I had, all, I had names for them. And it was Christmas Eve. Well, the thing was, the tradition I kept is that every night before I would go to bed, I would take one particular stuffed animal in my family and I would sleep with that stuffed animal. <laughs> Why am I telling you this? I don't think my students believe me about this. Well, anyways, it was Christmas Eve and it was a special night. And the, and, and the way we did Christmas when I was young, is, it, it was extremely Magical. And there was that awe that we all think of, maybe when we think of Christmas, especially as a child. And so I thought, this is such a special occasion. I don't just want to pick one or two or three stuffed animals. I want the whole family to be in the bed with me. (laughs) Leave none behind. But there was a problem. I I wasn't able to do that. I couldn't physically do that. So I called upon my two-year-old, he's two years older than me, I called upon my brother to help me. And so I said, uh, I'd like all my stuffed animals to sleep in the bed with me tonight on Christmas Eve. And he was kind of like, are you crazy? Well, I laid down on my back, which I don't usually sleep on my back, but I laid down on my back, and my brother so faithfully helped me, even though he probably didn't want to. He stacked all these stuffed animals all around my f- and the only thing that was showing was my face. And I was so excited that I had all the family in the bed with me. It was such a special occasion. I think I might have gone to bed around 10 o'clock. I'm not really sure, 9, 30, 10, you know, after... Christmas Eve kind of uh, traditions. And at about, I think it was one thirty in the morning, I started to come out of my sleep very slow. I was so hot, sweating profusely. And I got my temperature raised to such a level that it made me nauseous. And I held it in, and I held it in, and I thought I could just fight through this, I can just fight through this. And then I realized that I was about to throw up. This whole little family, oh, that's cute, and you have each little animal, and that's so sweet, went right out the window. And as I realized I was getting sick, I exploded out of my animals, sending them flying across the room, jumped up on top of my bed, kicked the animals as I was running off my bed, and I was running straight for the restroom across the upper landing hallway. It was straight across my room. And I ran right into the bathroom, and I definitely got sick. But I felt so much better afterward. And it didn't even strike me that it was Christmas Eve. As I turned around to go back into my room, it hit me. It was Christmas Eve. The stairwell, as I'm running across the bathroom, the stairwell was right to the left. There were 13 stairs. And if you go down those stairs and you hang an immediate right... There's the Christmas tree with all the lights and all the presents, which we left on most all the time every night. And so the lights from the tree illuminated that stairway. And I was afraid of the dark at that age. But I was more afraid of seeing Santa Claus. So I turned the light to the bathroom off, and I opened the door very slowly, and I let my eyes adjust to the darkness. And then I counted in my head. My heart was, boom, pounding. And I counted because I was like, what if I go and I see Santa Claus? This is serious. I ran to my room. One, two, three, four, five steps across the landing, into my doorway, two, three steps into my room. I leapt up onto my bed, belly flopping onto my bed and going straight into pasta mode like I was dead asleep. My heart was beating, so it was just pounding, pounding. And then I started to calm down. I started to realize everything was going to be okay. And then I heard the sound of footsteps coming up the stairs. And that scared me. My door was wide open. Um, it started, I think I started counting maybe around 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. The sound stopped. And then I heard the soft wisps of footsteps moving closer. The sound was getting a little bit louder and louder. And I realized that whoever it was, my mom or my dad or my brother, whoever was up, was standing in my doorway. At least that's how it felt. And then I heard more wisps that were really loud because that whoever it was, whoever that person was, was in my room. And then, this is why I don't think my students believed me, is because then whoever it was that was doing this, why are you laughing, (laughs) is a hand reached down and grabbed onto my ankle and shook it. But not like, Mom, Dad, hey, are you okay, are you okay? It was slow and creepy and methodical like this. And then I didn't move, but I was so afraid. Like, what if I turned around and looked, and I saw Santa Claus? And I'm thinking, that's not Santa. That's mom and dad. Turn around and look. No, I won't do it. (laughs) And then it reached down. The hand reached down and did it again. And I'm like, I'm not looking. I'm not looking. I'm not looking. And I didn't look. And then finally, I started to hear the soft wisps on the carpet leave my bedroom, and it started to go down the stairs.
1: Oh, that was your mom. That
0: was your dad or your brother or something like that, right, Blake? Um, here's the thing and please bear with me on the story here's the thing it was six to seven years ago my, I grew up in Colorado my wife and I, we went home to visit my mother over the holidays, we had a wonderful meal my brother and his wife were there and his children were there and we were all having a great time and dinner's over and we're relaxing and I'm 28 years old and we started talking about all these stories and these memories of Christmas time growing up and I said hey mom, I gotta ask you something I retold the story very quickly, a little bit shorter than I just told you. And I said, was that you or dad? And she astonishedly was like, no, without a smile. I'm like, you're lying to me. You don't understand, mom. I need to know. (laughs) And she said it was not her and it was not my dad. And then I automatically turned and stared at my brother. As if maybe he played this prank on me and he'd been carrying out for so long. Well, he's like, got mad. He's kind of gruff and he's not very emotional. He says, why would I do that to you? And he was just very... So to this day, I have no idea who it was. Hmm. The passage, right, talk about the fear of the Israelites looking up. You try to bring those examples to 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 the kids or to People. To try to help them identify with what's really going on there. The passage that we're going to come to today in our, in our text should elicit, hopefully, when we read it, some sort of fearful, like, expectation. When we understand the position of those who have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to guess here that while the text selected for the text I picked out to, to preach on today, it's familiar to most of us, unfortunately, it is too familiar. And so the familiarity of it, paired with the usual neglect of the Old Testament in most of Christian culture today, the fear and awe of the graciousness of God is missing from our lives. So that most times Christians are, watch this, undistinguishable from other people who do not know God, or worse yet, people that refuse to have God, they push them out of their life. Now, that's a harsh statement that I just laid on the front door of anybody who calls himself a believer. That fear and that awe of the graciousness of God is not displayed in the life of many, many believers because they become too familiar with this text so that they are undistinguishable. If you were to look at a non-believer, somebody who doesn't believe or pushes God out of their life, and you're to look at a believer, you're not able to distinguish if they're really, who's the believer here? Here's the text. I'm going to read it for you now. John writes in the first chapter of his gospel, the first verse, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The Word, which is an expression of a person, it's called the logos, in this case the full expression of God, has been, even before creation, It says that the full expression of God manifested has always been. Even before the creation of anything. John goes on to clarify the relationship between the Word and God by stating that this Word's place and status before the foundation of the universe and the world is that the Word, relationally positioned, the Word was with God. So not only was the Word before the beginning... But the word's relationship to God was not some distant, independent, mutual relationship that corresponded from time to time. No, it says the word was with God. And then he goes on to say, and the word was God. Then John calls the word, he. He, John says, was with God before the beginning. John, in setting out to distinctively prove that Jesus the Nazarite was in fact God come to earth, walking around in a human body, which is not the easiest thing to conceive, says that God's perfect expression of himself, he was not created, but was before creation and in proximity to God, relationally, he was with God, and in fact, is himself God, just as much as the Father is God. John is building, in this gospel, Jesus' authority as God, by linking him to Genesis 1.1. Watch this, I'll read it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. And when you put those two texts together against the backdrop of Colossians 1.16 where it explicitly and plainly teaches that Jesus is the creator of everything, you begin to understand that all men and all women who are in fact created beings are given the gift of life by Jesus of Nazareth. All men and all women everywhere oh their allegiance to Him without reservation. But see, we forget that. We don't like the idea that we owe Jesus. That we're not only accountable to Him, but that in some sense we are supposed to belong to Him in a a relational way where He is the Creator and we function in that relationship in our proper place knowing that we are created beings let me read for you not only of the creation act of Jesus, but the purpose of creation as Jesus understood it and planned it. At the end of Colossians, verse 16, leading to 17, For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. And John echoes that Colossians verse in John 1.3 in our next verse. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made. That's been made. You were created by Jesus. And your existence is for one reason. You exist for Him because that is how he wanted it. Watch how John here in verse 4 goes on to describe the reality that we are all familiar with. He states this in verse 4 about Jesus. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. John is still using creation language here to draw upon this idea that all mankind was planned and made and given life by Jesus, from Jesus... And for Jesus. And the life that he had within himself when he came 2,000 years ago, that life was the light of men. In the beginning of Genesis, God's first act was speaking. Let there be light. But John is not talking about the light of the sun that shines on the earth and gives physical light to all men. But instead, John is talking about the allegiance to Jesus that should readily be displayed in every single person's life because they owe Him. Because it is His life that is presently sustaining them. The light that Jesus brought to earth and the way He lived His life, John says, this life He had within Himself, this light should have been was supposed to be common to all of us. That through His life, When he appeared 2,000 years ago, we would be able to see God and our position to him, that he is the creator, we are the created, he is God, we are dust. And that the life we live every day is supposed to be and was purposed to be for him. This is something that was supposed to be common to everybody. Knowing exactly how we should orient ourselves to God in a relationship. But look at what John describes, how he describes the idea that when men and women looked upon Jesus' life, how he talked and how he walked and even how he laughed or, or how he related to people or how he related to God, this, this light, when it shined, they didn't understand it. Now John is not talking here about the creation of the sun, which gives physical light to men. He's talking about how in verse 5... If you follow, you're following along in your Bible, the light shined in the darkness of man's groping and stumbling around of how to relate to God. Or if there, even if there is a God. Something that was supposed to be natural for us. The light of his life shined in the darkness and the darkness cannot understand it. The moral depravity and the discombobulated groping around trying to figure out, is there a God? What is our position to him? When this light shined, showing that path, it was supposed to be obvious to us. And when it did appear, we didn't even recognize it. I wish the story got better. But as the saying goes, it gets worse before it gets better. Well, you might be thinking, how could it be any worse? The purpose for which Jesus created us, in most cases, is not what is taking place, if you look around you. Most people don't live and make decisions Based on what Jesus wants. Nor do some even care. They're just doing their own thing. But in reality, they were made for Him. How much sadder can it get? You may ask. Watch this. Skipping down to verses 10 and 11 as I read them together sequentially because of the power of its effect here. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him the world did not recognize him we've already kind of stated that verse 11 he came to that which was his own but his own did not receive him but there are some that do John continues in verse 12 yet to all who received him to those who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of god children Born, not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor a husband's will, as was often determined in the ancient world, where husbands say, I want to have a child now. Not like that, John says, but born of God. To receive Christ is to believe in His name. To see Jesus as He truly is. To trust that He is indeed God. That He is your Creator. That He is your Maker. And that you owe Him and were made specifically, and I would argue, specially, for him. God gives, if, if that's the way you're looking at things, God gives that person the right to be lifted out of this groping moral darkness of not knowing how to orient yourself to God. And he raises that person to the status of a son or a daughter of the only God that there is question might be floating around in the back of your mind maybe not but it might be a possibility well what about the other religions what about the other gods or the other deities that exist i mean what if somebody sincerely believes in them and then it turns out that christianity was right all this time and that any other belief including atheism is wrong and for the record at the heart of atheism there is a god it is self if christianity is proved to be the only true religion then what about the other religions let me have you think about it in this way if you prove that the founder of the Baha'i Faith, Sayyid Ali Muhammad, if you believe historic, if, if, if you're able to prove, I'm sorry, historically that he never existed, that would have little impact on the religious system. Or if you set out to disprove the existence of Siddhartha Gutama, the founder of Buddhism, and say somehow you're able to prove historically that he never existed, Buddhism would not crumble. The foundation of the belief and its practices is not dependent upon its leader. Or let's say, even further, if you walked into a Muslim mosque, or you were talking with an imam, a Muslim priest, and you asked them, I, I know you think that God gave his final revelation through Muhammad, but do you think there's any way possible that God could have given that final revelation through any other person that God chose? you would probably be offended at your question and say, Muhammad is God's messenger. I don't understand what you're asking me. He is the one who has spoken the sacred hadith or the narration of that revelation. God's final word to mankind. But But if you were to say in return, I know what you believe. But in your religion, is it possible that if Allah wanted to, he could have chosen someone else to bring his message to mankind? Could he have done that? the priest would probably say, I don't see why he would do something like that. But if you're asking me if he could, if he wanted to, then yes, of course he could. Allah could choose anyone he wanted, but he chose Muhammad. See, the thing that makes Christianity different from any other religion is that if you can conclusively historically, factually determined that Jesus of Nazareth was not real, then the whole thing crumbles. Because the one who brought the light from God to show us how we may orient ourselves toward God was God himself. And if Jesus, whom John says is God, is not real... Then Christianity, if it's consciously believed, knowing that Jesus is not really real, or that he's even further, if he's just a man, that he's not God. Paul goes on to say further that if your hope rests in Christ only for what he can do for you in this life, then not only is anybody who preaches Christ a liar, but anyone who knowingly believes Jesus, if he is not real, then that person is to be pitied, Paul says, more than any person, because they are believing a lie and they're basing their whole life on something that is not real. And with the other leaders of various religions and movements over the centuries, they've never declared themselves to be God. Because there are some that are, that have, I'm sorry, and they died. And their movement is either no longer heard of, or it had to be altered in order to accommodate the inconsistencies between them saying that they are God and them actually being God. But in Jesus, whom the Scriptures declare to be your creator, you find no inconsistencies. In fact, some people would make the charge that the God that you see in the Old Testament is absolutely different than the God you see in the New Testament. See, even secular scholars will attribute the fact that Jesus the Nazarene said he was God. They won't deny that he said that. But to say that this Jesus is the God we see in the pages of the Old Testament is totally inconsistent. Totally contradictory. That's what they would say. John here argues for just the opposite. Now, it's one thing for John to make some bold statements trying to affirm that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed God, the only God. But John is so absolutely convinced that Jesus of Nazareth is the God that you and I find in the pages of the Old Testament that he drops a key phrase in verse 14 that is absolutely, to me when I read it, astounding. There are two parts here, but before I read how John makes this strong case that Jesus is your creator and that He is the same God we read about in the Old Testament, I want to quote for you a well-written author that has sold over two million copies of his book called The God Delusion. He talks about the God of the Old Testament. He says this, The God of the Old Testament is arguably, two million copies, is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous, and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty thir- ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic. Does anybody have a dictionary? Homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. And he speaks in the same breath about Jesus. What is interesting, he says, and remarkable about Jesus, was not the obvious fact that he believed in the God of his Jewish religion, but he rebelled against many aspects of the Lord's vengeful, sorry, vengeful nastiness. At least in the teachings that are attributed to him, he publicly advocated niceness and was one of the first to do so to those steeped in the Sharia-like cruelties of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, to those brought up to fear the vindictive Ayatollah-like God of Abraham and Isaac, a charismatic young preacher who advocated generous forgiveness must have seemed radical to the point of subversion. No wonder they killed him. What Dawkins has done in American culture, dare I say Christian culture, is that he has carved out a chasm between God the Father of the Old Testament and God the Son of the New. But John reaches back into the Exodus account and borrows two key words from Exodus 34, quoted by the Lord himself as he passes by Moses in the cleft of the rock. God there proclaimed His name. He said, The Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, but abounding in love and faithfulness. Those words used here for love and for faithfulness are chesed and Emed. Chesed is to be defined as a deep, unconditional, committed love, which in its synonym form is basically translated Grace. And the word emed, the word translated faithfulness in the Old Testament there, represents the basis on which someone is able to depend on something, to be able to rely on something. What we would associate associate with somebody speaking the truth, you're able to depend on it. Now, there are two two more things I want to say as I close here in keeping uh, the backdrop that Jesus is your creator. The first... Is in the first half of the verse 14. John says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. In the Greek language, John uses the word dwelling, which means to pitch a tent. He's using this word as a reference to a conversation that took place between Moses and God. When, if you remember, Moses came down off the mountain as their wonderful conversation was interrupted by God, alerting Moses to the orgasmic debauchery taking place at the foot of the mountain. When Moses descends to see for himself what God has already told him, and after he goes down and after he disciplines Israel, and the people who are participating in that horrible wickedness, Moses asks God to forgive them. Moses intercedes for them. But God's reply is this, Leave me alone so I can destroy them. This is what God says after everything that he has done for them and displayed for them. In their midst, he even offers Moses an opportunity that I think most of us would probably take. He offers Moses the chance to have a nation come through him after he's wiped the Israelites out. Moses, of course, rejects this and he fires back at God that surely you would not destroy your own people. How then will you keep your word to Abraham? In effect, is what he says. Moses basically says that God would be breaking his end of the agreement if he destroyed his unfaithful people. God, in reply to Moses, seems to change his mind about the whole matter. But he is still not personally willing to become invested in this people again. God says back to Moses, The Lord replied to him, Now go, lead the people to the place that I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. But I will not go with you, because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. Then Moses replies back to him. He says to the Lord, You've been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Remember, Aaron was one of the guys that sold out. And that was one of the whole contingencies why Moses said, I'll go if if Aaron comes with me or you send somebody to speak for me. But Aaron has sold out now, so Moses is utterly alone. You haven't let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I can know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied to him, My presence will go with you, singular. And I will give you, singular Moses, rest. Then Moses says back to him, If your presence does not go with us, don't send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Then the Lord replies back to him, I will do the very thing that you have asked. Because I am pleased with you. And you are my friend. Or it might say in your translation, I know you by name. And when you look at the future events of Israel after this conversation, it was commanded for one copy of the Ten Commandments to be placed in the Ark of the Covenant along with the second copy together. Both of these were placed in the Ark of the Covenant, which by God's command was to be located in the middle, in the center of the Israelite camp, in the midst of the people, or we might say among his people. So when the nations looked at this people, they would see God in their midst. But notice how striking it is when John borrows language from this event. He uses the words, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Now, don't forget that when this Word appeared 2,000 years ago, this light, this life, which was the light of men, which was in the midst of the people, Jesus was walking around in the midst of that which was His, but they did not receive Him because of the darkness of their moral depravity. They didn't believe in Him. But he was there, in the midst of them, among them. And the people still did not recognize him for who he was, and still most do not. When you drop the name, what do you think of, when you say, What do you think of Jesus? or Who is Jesus to you? But when Moses finds out that God calls him his friend, it's almost as if Moses takes advantage of the situation. He then asks a request, and that would not be a request that you would hear a vassal make to a king or a servant to a master. But he makes the request only someone would ask as if it was one friend to another. This is astonishing. He says, in effect, let me know who you are then. If, or you would read in your Bible probably, show me your glory. And as the Lord passes by, which we already quoted what he said, Moses is in the cleft of the rock, and he only gets to see the Lord's back. But as the Lord is passing by, he proclaims what John, listen, attributes to Jesus in verse 14. When he says, like Moses, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of chesed and emed, or it might read, full of grace and truth. See, what John carefully does after he makes this strong case, stating that Jesus of Nazareth is the creator, your creator, he goes on to save by borrowing these phrases from Exodus 32 and 34, that Jesus is the same God who revealed himself to Moses on that mountain. And he's the same God who dwelt with his people, though they groped around in spiritual rebellion and darkness. And not only did they not recognize him, but neither did they believe him, nor did they receive him. The only question that is left for us as Christians, knowing that Jesus made us and by his power holds the universe together as it stands currently, right now. The only question that I can ask myself and that you can ask yourself if you consider yourself to be one of God's people is the same question Moses asked of God. How will anyone know that God is pleased with you unless His presence is among you? Singular. What else will distinguish you as one of His from all the other people on the face of the earth? The deciding factor for Israel is the exact same factor for us. God dwelling in our very lives. Every decision. Every waking thought. Every desire, every struggle, every goal you set out to do in your life, Jesus must be at the center of it. He must be the driving passion behind it. I know it's hiding down there deep somewhere, but you might be thinking, I have to give Jesus everything. Do not forget this important truth as we close. When he came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him, It was not because they just saw Jesus as another option on the table of what to do with their life. No, they missed who Jesus was and is, and so do we when we fail to realize that He is our Maker. And He is the one who is presently sustaining your heartbeat right now. We owe Him our undivided, wholehearted allegiance, not because He loves us, not because He died for us, but because He made us. And He made you. And He made you for Himself. We're going to go ahead and... S-
2: We that love the Lord and let our joys be known. Join in a song with sweet accord, join in a song with sweet accord, and us around the throne, and us around the throne. We're marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching upward to Zion, the beautiful city of God. Let those refuse to sing who never knew our God. But children of the heavenly king, but children of the heavenly king, may speak their joys abroad, may speak their joys abroad. We're marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching upward to Zion, the beautiful city of God. Then let our songs abound, and every tear be dry. We're marching through Emmanuel's ground. We're marching through Emmanuel's ground. To fairer worlds on high, to fairer worlds on high. We're marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching upward to Zion, the beautiful city of God.
0: Pray with me, please. Father, in a world of change, we are so grateful that you do not change in who you are and your character and your nature. We thank you that you have sent Jesus to us and that for those of us who have, that we've been able to respond to him by totally committing our lives to him. I pray that we've been challenged today, Heavenly Father, by looking that your son as more than just the savior who died for us but as our maker and that we've been made for a reason and a purpose i thank you that that, that that is true i pray as we start preparing our hearts for communion with you you would just encourage us and continue to speak to us today in your son's name amen you may have seat We're going to go ahead and start preparing for uh, this time in our service when uh, we take communion, when we celebrate the Lord's death and his sacrifice for us uh, by taking the cup and the bread. Uh, If this is your first time here, usually we'll pass around and wait till the end. But we just encourage you to take this time. um, If you are a believer and Jesus is everything to you, that you will just um, take this time to really savor uh, that relationship and the conversations that you would have with him Um, There's a little receptacle in front of you there if you want to set it and wait. If you want to take it right away, it's fine too. Um, This is your time to commune with your Lord as Jonathan's going to lead us again in singing.
2: Your only Son, no sin to hide but you have sent him from your side to walk upon this guilty side and to become the Lamb of God. O oh, Lamb of God, sweet Lamb of God, I love the whole. The Lamb of God. Oh, wash me in His precious blood. My Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Your gift of love they crucified. They laughed and scorned him as he died The humble king they named a fraud And sacrificed the Lamb of God O Lamb of God, sweet Lamb of God I love the Holy Lamb of God. Oh, wash me in His precious blood. My Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. I was so lost, I should have died. But you have brought me to your side To be led by your staff and rod And to be called the Lamb of God O Lamb of God, sweet Lamb of God I love the Holy Lamb of God, Oh, wash me in His precious blood, my I am a lamb.
1: Luke 2.7 says, And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloth and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. John 19.25 says, Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Francis Frank wrote a poem about Mary He said, "'Did the woman say when she held him for for that first time in the dark dank of a stable, after the pain and the bleeding and the crying, this is my body, this is my blood? Did the woman say when she held him for the last time in the dark rain on a hilltop, after the pain and the bleeding and the dying, this is my body, this is my blood?' I don't know that Mary said those words. She had a right to. She gave him life. We don't have a right to say that, but we do have the privilege to because he gave us life. He shed his blood for us. And I like to make it a little bit more personal. You see, even back then, he knew me. He gave his life for me. So as we partake now, we can say... This is his body that he allowed to be broken for me. This is his blood that was poured out for me.